Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. Watching the first two films in the Torchy Blaine series, Smart Blonde and Fly Away Baby, both ca- which came out in uh, 1937. Who is Torchy Blaine? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked that, Kevin. Torchy Blaine is sort of, uh, I guess, sort of the maybe one of the codifiers for the sort of a uh, spunky girl reporter trope. I guess she's she's beautiful lady reporter, uh, and she'll do everything to get her scoop. Um, whether that's, you know, sneaking into places or tricking people or jumping on a train or, 
you know, wheedling her police officer boyfriend to get her the scoop. Obvious question is, what's the craziest thing you've done to get a scoop? <laughs> I did nothing. I don't do... Surely you've got some wild oh stories to God. tell us. Uh, I think you're just being a little bit shy. I don't have a lot of torchy light moments. I need to get out more. Although, honestly, if I pulled some of the crap Torchy does, I think I'd get fired. So, so are you saying that you don't think uh, reporters like uh, Torchy really exist? I think I think they do. I think some people are, are very Torchy-esque. And God bless them, you know. That, that can work for some people. If I had behaved like Torchy, I think I'd... I'd have had like a stress heart attack by now. <laughs> uh, and the Torchy Blaine movies are actually based on a series of short stories written by Frederick, uh, is it pronounced Nebel? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's say Nebel. Yeah, let's say that. He was a big uh, pulp writer for uh, magazines like Black Mask back in the 1920s. Uh, some people say he's been unjustly forgotten, that he's second only to Hammett. Uh, I can tell you like maybe... 10 or 15 years ago uh, I tried to read some of his stories and I at least at the time uh, I found him unreadable I can only to ham it that's what I've heard what about Chandler hey I'm just, who are these people let me let me at him let me at him um uh, and of course his short stories uh, were ca- were called the characters were called McBride and Kennedy Kennedy was a male reporter who apparently was a bit of a drunk. And when they made it into movies, they made Kennedy a female reporter named uh, Torchy Blaine. And the rest is movies like Smart Blonde. Yeah, we're going to do a double feature today because these movies are only like an hour. So we figured we'd watch them and then sort of dish on what they're like. But yeah, the first one is Smart Blonde. That's where we're introduced to Miss Blaine. And it's a great opening sequence. Tell me about it. Well, she she's uh, she's in a taxi cab, and she's raring to get a hot scoop. She's interviewing someone on board the train, but of course she's in a taxi driving next to the train. She has the taxi guy drop her off just in the middle of nowhere, and she runs to the train and grabs the end of it and swings herself on hobo style and then emerges into the car sort of passes herself off as a passenger and goes and interviews uh, a businessman named Tiny Torgerson about how he's buying the hottest nightclub in town. And that's how she gets the scoop. It's a great introduction. We learn a lot about this character, what her priorities are, the goals she has, being the best reporter, getting the story first. And uh, and it's just, it, it's a lot of fun. And it also gets in some uh, good exposition for the plot of this picture. Tiny Torgerson is buying some businesses, selling nightclub businesses, I believe, from a man named Fitz Malarkey, uh, who is selling out because Fitz wants to uh, get married. And oddly enough, a number of people have been trying to bid for Fitz's businesses. And Fitz, for some reason, has chosen Mr. Torgensen, even though Torgensen has not bid as much as some other people. So that's a bit of a mystery. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a, I wish the rest of the movie were like this. I wish the whole series were like this because it's such a, it's just such a fun sequence. You're dropping some hints there that perhaps you did not enjoy this picture. I enjoyed the picture. I think, you know, for what it's, what's fun about it is quite fun. Um, but it's very, very inconsistent. And I think you really need to be in the mood for like a spunky girl reporter film 
in order to sit through some of the sloggy parts, you know, and if that's not your thing, then you're probably not going to enjoy it. That, w- that would be what I say. Yeah, that that's fair. I really enjoyed a bit of a spoiler. I really enjoyed the spunky reporter parts. Some of the other parts I kind of mentally checked out. Yeah. You, it's one of those things you're kind of like, hmm, checking your phone and then like, oh, Torchy's on the scene. She's doing something cool and nice. And then she like leaves and you're like, okay. Like, <laughs> and then we look at each other and say, oh, well, who's this? Or what Ooh, happened What the there? fuck's that? Why is this guy there? Why are they on the Hindenburg? That's later though. So anyway, back to this train scene. Um, Torchy ends up getting more of a scoop than she bargained for because as they're coming off the train, Tiny Torgensen gets shot to death in the cab that they're about to take together. So she calls into her editor with the scoop, says um, Tiny is dead, and uh, get you know gets the rewrite desk. Uh, meanwhile, um, we meet Fitz. He's the other businessman. He's the guy who was gonna sell to Tiny. Uh, he's he's at the bar with this lady. I couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on at this point. I thought it was his fiance, but it's actually some other lady named Dolly Ireland. She's the she's the singer in the club that he owns. And they're, they're sitting at the bar talking about how, you know, she's quitting after he sells the club and he's getting out of the business. And then suddenly she just, it's time for her to sing for her last performance. And she just starts singing at the bar. <laughs> I was like, imagine you were like some guy, some like local alcoholic just trying to get shit faced after work, you know, because you got fired or like your boss was mean to you. And you're suddenly, someone behind you just starts like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> I love also just love these old 1930s culture things where like people just go and hear some random lady sing kind of in a weird voice and pronounce things weirdly. And that was considered like the hot ticket in town. Or maybe it wasn't. I don't I don't know enough about this time period, but like all these movies, the thin man has shit like this. All these movies have like some nightclub scene where it's like, oh, I'm the nightclub singer. And it's like, what is going on? Do people still do that? I'll, I think I told you this, but when my when my friend and I went to Orlando, we went and we went to a club, and there was a Michael Jackson impersonator there. And we were kind of like, "Ugh, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is going on?" Orlando's a strange place. It's trying to be like a Vegas. That's the closest thing I can think of. And then uh, Torchy goes to this club with her boyfriend, mm. Steve McBride. Can you tell us a little bit about Mister McBride and what kind of impression he made on you? I mean, Steve's just, like, pissed off. If you heard us talk about, uh, if you listened to our episode on the Thin Man sequel. No, no, and you let me interrupt. I can handle this better than you. You just you just go mind your own business and hang out in the other room, okay? I'll take care of this. That's Steve. <laughs> that was very good. That was very much Steve. He's not fun. He's like a, you've seen this character a thousand times. And you've seen it done in much more fun and interesting ways than this character we're, we're getting in this movie. And we're going to see a lot of him. <laughs> and that's unfortunate. He's kind of mean to Torchy. He doesn't really seem to uh, appreciate her. Some of the reviews online I saw for this movie said that the two actors had great chemistry together. I didn't really see any chemistry. Yeah, and like he like them. kind of like blocks her physically and like shoves her or like kind of like pushes her a bit and I'm like I I don't like that. I that's bad vibes for me. You shouldn't be doing that to your lady or any lady. I I, I just it got I was like, "Oh, Steve's going to hit her." Like it, <laughs> I was it was not that's not a fun feeling where you're like this guy's going to doesn't soften you up for the belly laughs. 
Yeah, like, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's way too much. It's way too much. I like, I, I like a, a good kind of bantery back and forth, kind of we're enemy, frenemy lovers as much as the next gal. But this character is just kind of unpleasant and, you know, he, he, he's sort of one dimensional, one dimensional in that sense. Um, meanwhile, uh, yeah, and he, he's also just dismissive of all reporters. He says something pretty heinous. I think all reporters are a headache and I don't know why I even talk to them. Who would say such a thing? We're great. <laughs> well, I may have said it once or twice. Oh, I know. Meanwhile, Torchy goes You have off. that on a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. It's the title of my memoir. <laughs> meanwhile, Torchy goes, uh, after Steve shoves her aside, she goes and talks to the hat chat girl. Who gives you some of the hot gossip and uh, interesting detail about that sequence is the hat chat girl is played by Jane Wyman, who actually goes on to play the role of Torchy Blaine in the last movie of the series. She all about eved it. Yes. And also she later married Ronald Reagan. Oof. So can't win them all. Can't win them all. <laughs> she made some missteps. Um, also, it was in Falcon Crest. I don't even know what that is. So that's neutral for me. Can I talk about the garage scene? Sure. I'll talk about the garage scene. So this is was my, weirdly enough, favorite, second favorite uh, scene in the film. Uh, not I mean that doesn't beat the train scene, but... Pretty close. But mm, No, the train scene actually is good. This scene is just ridiculous and stupid, but I loved it anyway. So there's... Suddenly we go where they're in the garage. Torchy and McBride are in a cop car in the garage. And some big guy is washing the car. McBride starts screaming at him about washing the car. These people are futzing around and, and then the, you know, the hose is going, right? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly this guy, this big guy who we're later introduced to as Gehagen, who's also a cop, turns and looks at the camera I don't know. My eyesight's terrible, so I don't know if he was actually looking at the camera breaking the fourth wall. But he, like, puts his hands on his hips as the car drives away with McBride and Torchy in it. And I was like, what the fuck? It's funnier than it sounds. <laughs> it's just so stupid, and it comes out of nowhere. And it's like, why? 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 Why is this happening? And he's basically the chauffeur of the cops. He's allegedly a cop himself. But his only job is to stand around, drive people around, and recite poetry lines. And occasionally wash a car. You know, I, I would have really preferred it for Gehagen to be uh, the cop that Torchy works with. Oh, that would have been delightful, yeah. Because like, Gehagen seems like a nice guy. Like, and they, you, you could do that. I mean, like, you don't have to do the romantic element. It can be just a cop and a reporter who have a professional relationship. Unlike McBride, uh, Hagen is uh, likable. He seems to like Torchy, and she seems to like him. It's it's not like he's, like, yelling constantly. He's just kind of a, you know, he's a poet, and he likes to, you know, stand around. And I don't know. Yeah, this McBride guy really drives He got into your skin. What? He got into your skin, McBride. You didn't like him at all. Did you like him at all? Yeah, there you go. He's just not likable. They didn't give him much, you know. Like, if you're going to have it... I, I would have preferred it if he'd been more like, Oh, Torchy, like, you think you're a detective. That's sweet. Like, that would have been still, like, toxic bullshit, but it would have been less, like, threatening 
This guy is like, he's going to shoot up the office or something. And surely by this stage, you know, this is, we meet Torchy in this movie, but he met her a long time ago. So surely by this stage of the game, he knows she's intelligent. Is probably, she's probably helped him solve a case or two. So why doesn't he just respect her? Maybe it's because she's always nagging him to take her out to dinner. Yeah, a woman will do that to you. She's always saying, oh, you know, she wants steak and stuff. And, and meanwhile, you know, that's like a running joke. But, um, you know, she and McBride go to visit Fitz um, along with his fiance, who's very fancy, and his fiance's brother. And they kind of learn that Fitz's old bodyguard Chuck has been acting all crazy lately because basically, like, Chuck is going to get fired because... Fitz is going into a new line of respectable business and he doesn't need like an enforcer anymore for his club. So Chuck is all pissed off. Yeah, there's a great line at this point. What is that line? I, I, I'll give you the setup. Uh, I, as the irritating McBride, you know, Anya, you can't go in that house because you're a lady. I'm a newspaper man. <laughs> uh, that was great. <laughs> And then she stays in the car though, and he and he goes, and that's the that that sums up the problem with this, with this franchise so far in these first two movies. It it has like a great great elements where she's saying, "I'm a newspaper man, fuck you!" Like you can't, you know, you can't be sexist to me. I'm gonna go do what I want. But then she kind of just stays in the car. She doesn't actually come out of the car till later, you know. And it's and it's like the movie itself is almost cowed by this Steve McBride character when it should just be the Torchy show because that's. She's the one who's entertaining and, and fun to watch and not scary. But eventually <laughs> she sneaks in. She sneaks in after him and they investigate Chuck's apartment together, find a suspicious note, and then Fitz comes in. And then, I mean, I, I my eyesight's terrible, but did this just look like guys in hats yelling at each other to you? Yeah. Uh, this may have been the part of the movie where I started checking out a little bit. I think some of the characters did too, because there's also a scene where uh, Jane Wyman, the hat chat girl, uh, says, you know, I woke up from a hangover and there was a St. Bernard in the bed with me. And it's like, what? I mean, uh, yeah. And, and meanwhile, and yeah, I mean, the one who always seems checked out is Gehagen. He's yelling, every other scene, he's yelling about what a wonderful day it is. What a day, what a day. And it's like, okay. But at least that's like fun, stupid. Um, but meanwhile, it's kind of like the whole formula is McBride will get some dumb hunch and then Torchy will be like doing things to kind of actually solve the case, you know, bringing in witnesses, bringing in clues, um, even though he's always doubting her. And it's like, if you if you worked with this woman once, wouldn't you just be bringing her to all your cases? Because otherwise you wouldn't get anything done. You, of course, are a beloved spunky reporter. <laughs> Oh, thank you. So let's use your your insight into that mindset. What do you suppose she sees in Steve? I don't know. I think Torchy needs to go to therapy. He just negs her. Yeah, he's just mean to her. He's not nice. It's not fun to watch. And it's not like she's using him to get stories. I think she probably does more for him than he does for her. She's like solving cases for him. That baffled me. Yeah. You're not like Steve, Kevin. Don't worry. You're nice to, <laughs> you're nice to this reporter. Oh, what a wonderful day! Oh. I'm more like a Guy Hagen type. <laughs> Guys, be like Guy Hagen. Don't be like Steve. It's <laughs> <laughs> my tip. Because <laughs> Guy Hagen doesn't give a shit. He's just being himself. He's just gonna 
rattle off about poetry, you know, and then just, meh, whatever. And Gahagan is played by Tom Kennedy, is the only actor to be in all nine of these things. People couldn't get enough of this shit. Why didn't he get a spinoff series of his own? Wouldn't you love seeing a Gahagan runs for mayor movie? Oh, yeah. I would. I would. <laughs> Gahagan in Panama. I would watch it. Smart Gahagan. He's like a fun, <laughs> he's like a fun, like, like big Irish guy who's just stumbling around, baffled by everything. We've all been there. I thought that was fun. I thought his, his routine was pretty fun. And it was one of those things, like, I feel like they didn't include too much. Like, it wasn't like he was in it every other scene where, you know, doing weird shit. It was like, they kind of, they sprinkled him in, you know. If only they'd done that with McBride. The only, yeah. I wanted to see Torchy solving these mysteries. I didn't want to see some rando. It's the Torchy Blaine series, not the Stephen McBride series. Come on. It's not like a uh, smart, pudgy, middle-aged man. It's smart, blonde. Yes, exactly. Also, what a fucking, what a title. <laughs> Box office gold. Do you think? Do you think a bunch of the writers just sat around the you know table being like, "What's the most sexist thing we can think up of?" And they're all like smoking five cigarettes. Blonde reporter, no smart blonde. <laughs> yeah, Torchy deserves better than this. Um, you know she she goes into the newsroom though. She gives some notes to the editor and even reveals that she wants to marry Steve. <sighs> Doesn't reveal why. No. Um, I mean, he does at some point say, say, call her kid and say that she's aces and that the rough stuff is over, which is like, oh God, call the, no, that's not, that's not good. That's, but, um, but then it, it, it cut the scene and they're making out in the back of the car while Gahagan is excited to do the sirens or something where they're going. And, uh, and then the next scene is them fighting again. It's not like cute uh, David and Maddie or type fighting. It's just, I don't know. He starts calling himself Daddy McBride? <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit creepy. And, how, how would you react if I started calling myself Papa Kevin? Papa Greenley. Uh, but meanwhile, McBride is barking up the wrong tree already. He's accusing Dolly Ireland, the aforementioned nightclub singer, of, uh, you know, murdering Chuck um, and being protected by Fitz. Lots of quick dialogue, lots of yelling. Torchy immediately searches her bag and finds that there's no, none of the evidence that McBride thought there was going to be. So, uh, you know, and Torchy also alibis her. So McBride just ends up looking like a, a doofus. But meanwhile, Torchy's kind of pieced out, uh, pieced together a bunch of things by the, at this point, just through interacting with all of her sources from the story. She's pretty much interviewed everyone involved um, going around. And, and so now she's kind of, you know, potentially drawing up some conclusions. So so what happens next? Uh, aside from the interlude of Gahagan standing outside, because, uh, you know, Torchy and, Blaine, uh, Torchy and McBride go to uh, confront Fitz because they suspect that he's hiding at his fiance's apartment. He's he's on the run now because uh, the police suspect him of, of murder, but... Hagen's outside of the apartment talking about the sky and stars and how wonderful life is. And it's like, okay. Uh, there's one of these old fashioned movie type big confrontations where lots of dirt is spilled. And there's a confrontation and a torchy 
gets the brother to uh, spill the beans that the parents are dead. And the brother and sister, they're actually crooks. Uh, the brother pulls out a rod. But then uh, Fitz saves the day by killing the brother. Uh, he decides he's going to keep the club. And meanwhile... Oh, yeah, or at this point, uh, McBride seems to be slightly impressed. And he says, you know, torture, you ought to be a detective. And she says, well, so ought you. He then proposes to Torchy and takes her out to eat. And, of course, being a woman, that's all she really cares about is getting that free meal. Credits roll into picture. We were kind of like, what the fuck was that? So we decided to watch a second one to see if we got a different flavor or, like, what we thought of the second one. So the second one is Fly Away Baby. And the opening credits note that it is based on an idea by Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen was uh, a famous reporter for decades. Uh, she covered a lot of crime, a lot of murder trials, lots of scandals. Maybe almost like a real-life Torchy Blaine. Uh, at the end of her life, she became best known as being a panelist on the weekly television game show, What's My Line? And uh, she passed away uh, from an accidental overdose of barbiturates. And uh, some people, conspiracy theorists, uh, believe she was actually murdered because she knew too much about who was really responsible for the JFK assassination. But it was just an accidental overdose of barbiturates because she uh, was an alcoholic and a drug abuser. But back in the 30s, uh, she was at her peak, and in 1936, the year before this picture was made, she was one of a group of reporters who were having an around-the-world race, a modern-day Nellie Bly. And that premise of a reporter on an around-the-world race is, for some reason, they decided, we have a, a movie we're going to make with almost no budget at all. Let's pretend like we're visiting all sorts of foreign locales that we can't really afford to show. <laughs> it's a master stroke. It's a great idea. <laughs> Lots so, of... Hope you like stock footage. If so, got great news. So, idea by Dorothy Kilgallen. What happens after the opening credits? Torchy meets Jack Ruby. No, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a, quite a history lesson. Very interesting. Um, I would say, okay, yeah, so so basically we open up with the cops, high-speed chases going on, um, and uh, some some notable bigwig in town named uh, Devereaux has been murdered. And uh, an editor is calling for Torchy because she's the one with the on the police beat, and she's nowhere to be found, and he's pissed off because he trained her, he taught her everything she knows, and she's running off to get a marriage license. He's ranting. It's one of those classic editor rants where it's like you're not allowed to have a personal life. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Doesn't that seem to be a running theme in these journalism movies where like the editor's just like, blah, 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 blah. you went off and take, took a weekend day off? And I was like, jeez. And your editors are all teddy bears. They're all very My nice. editors are always telling me to take time off. So I'm glad things are different now. Anyways, uh, but Torchy ends up getting to the scene of this crime. Because um, she was supposed to, she and Steve are supposed to get a marriage license. She goes there. Steve doesn't show up because he's at some crime scene. She goes to the crime scene. There's a bunch of reporters outside the building. Gahagan, of all people. What a coincidence. Gahagan is there 
keeping all the reporters out. He does let one rich man's uh, son, uh, who's also working as a reporter, he's Lucy, allowed in. Lucian Croy. Oh, Lucian Croy. He's, a, he's allowed in. Uh, Hagen starts mouthing off about how this is his last day as a police officer, and he can't let Torchy in. So Torchy does like the most inane trick to get past him. Do you want to elaborate on the trick? Is it just enough to say that it's, it's a name? Basically, gets him to pose with his arms up and then runs under his arms. <laughs> basically, to sum it up, um, after accusing him of discrimination against reporters, and um, yeah, you know, she confronts McBride for ditching her basically at the altar, um, and. Uh, you know, he kind of is trying to put her off. So he he ditches her with Croy, this fancy reporter who sort of snubs her. And also says that Torchy can smell a porterhouse further than any woman he knows. <laughs> He's never met you. I don't... I'm not a huge steak fan, but thanks. <laughs> you can still smell him. <laughs> I have a good nose. A nose for news. <laughs> I'm a bloodhound. When it comes to the scoops. <laughs> Sniff him out. And meanwhile, Torchy finds a German Luger gun um, and notes that the whole, you know, the murder of Devereaux looks like a, some sort of professional hit. Or, you know, that that's what the cops are thinking at that point. Um, Croy is only there because his family, his rich family, is friends with this with the murder victim. Some guy named Alistair is also there who, he, he's Devereaux's partner. He's a, another rich guy. I think he's like the publisher of one of the newspapers. Is that right? Yeah. But meanwhile, by talking to the staff, which is what Torchy always does, Torchy actually figures out that uh, Croy himself was fighting with the murdered man, not a not uh -oh. but not a few hours before the murder. So pretty mm. suspicious. Uh huh. In my book, I think this fancy pants has something to hide. It, we still seem to be seeing a lot more Steve than Torchy. I think that at least in these first two pictures, that's uh, a big problem. Huge problem. He's not charming. He's not fun. You know, we want to see. I want to. I want to see like a sassy lady reporter run around and, you know, get the scoop. I think it was about this time in the movie that we see uh, Gehagen appear in a top hat, and he runs and he jumps into a car. And did I dream that? No, I think that came a little bit later. No, no, that that was about then. Yeah, um, we we skipped over a few things, but the, that does happen, and it is very surreal. Gahagan has like this weird surreal quality to him, where you're kind of like, "Are you in a different movie? <laughs> like a movie that like has animated like bunnies in it or something? Like you just don't feel like he's quite on the level with with everybody. <laughs> he's just showing up, and and they don't. I mean, as far as I can tell, they never really explain that, or like, I, I not an explanation that I find fitting. He just, he's in he's in coattails, a top hat. McBride <laughs> sees him and is like Gahagan, and then he runs from them and jumps into a car that speeds away with like a fancy lady. So make of that what you will. Um, just to fill you in on some of the stuff we skipped, uh, Torchy and McBride w found a clue at her favorite chop house, uh, where it's uh like uh like someone wrote figures on a menu that is uh, is the sum of the missing money that was stolen from Devereaux. Um. A waiter confirms that Alistair and Croy were there the previous, you know, previously. The McBride and Torchy confront Croy at his nightclub dancer girlfriend's apartment, and she alibis him. And so uh, 
McBride's all pissed off at Torchy being like, of course it wasn't Croy. It was some random robber, whatever. So meanwhile, this is kind of realistic. Uh, we go to the reporters at the bar. Just all the reporters in town are here. All the reporters in town are at this bar at 11 a.m. getting drunk. <laughs> that seems kind of realistic for the time, especially. And they're talking about how this uh, reporter, Croy, is going to take, going to fly around the world. And someone else says, oh, I'm going to fly around the world, too, and it'll be a race, and uh, I'll beat him. And then, then we cut to Hagen. He's getting his shoes shined. <laughs> Torchy sees it. Torchy sees this whole thing, which I, which I guess maybe is, is significant. The Torchy sees this. I don't know, but uh, uh, it has a shocking denouement because Gehagen doesn't have the money <laughs> to pay the shoe shine guy. So the shoe shine guy throws his rag down in anger. He's furious. <laughs> He's a, hopping mad. It's a very important scene. That mentioned the Torchy Torchy saw that. Yes. Okay. Why is that important? I don't know. So, it seemed to be because they made a big deal about it. The Torchy was there. They did. Um and <laughs> just like I like random little scenes like that. I'd rather see that than like McBride yelling at Torchy. Um McBride, of course, uh, seals his fate as my least favorite character in this because he uh, says to Torchy that only men can solve crimes. But, you know, you know, they're just sending him up to get his comeuppance. But meanwhile, Torchy helped solve the last crime. So what is he even talking about? That's what I I don't mind that he's a jerk, but I mind that he's a jerk and he doesn't change at all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like you previously solved a crime with because of this, your fiance, maybe, you know, maybe, you've, you know, like. Maybe you could remember that. And if for some reason he truly thinks she is an incompetent, meddling buffoon, why does he want to marry her? And there's not enough, like, really back and forth for it to be like, oh, they just fake fight to flirt. It's not, you don't get that vibe either. Uh, meanwhile, Torchy does something that all reporters dread. She puts together a big pitch for all the top editors and, and the publisher of her paper. She wants to go in the plane race. She wants to enter. And and the, I love the publisher in this because the publisher's like, like, Torchy, that's not news. <laughs> but, <laughs> a, a bunch of reporters flying around the world in a race is not news. That's not important. We have issues to cover. We need to talk about the real fucking issues in this town. So dare I ask, is that a realistic, have you ever gone to your superior's and excitedly pitched a story only to be told it wasn't news. Yes. <laughs> Many a time. So the chill must have gone up They almost sent me to Yellowstone to look for that treasure, remember? I was this was me all over. Basically there was a crazy old guy who hid treasure in the West the Rockies and I I wrote a story about it because I thought it was funny. And then the top brass were like, oh, this is really fun. You should go there and try to find it. So I like then took that seriously and pitched it. And they were like, <laughs> they didn't let me go. But it was okay. It wasn't really news. <laughs> you would have found it. You'd been like Scrooge McDuck. I w yeah, I could have. I would have disappeared then <laughs> with the money. Maybe that's what they were worried. They're like, this is a good idea, but Anya's too, Anya's too shifty for this. She's too smart. She's not going to give it to give it to the 
the uh, the outlet. Yeah, so you know, I I've been at these meetings and they're pretty brutal. But you know, I I was like good for the publisher for being a little bit like you know we're not gonna just do bullshit. Um, because yeah, back in the like thirties, you felt like anything would go. It'd be like this reporter is gonna climb to the top of the Empire State Building. This reporter is gonna tap dance on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And like it was like what the fuck are we? What are you doing? Not news. Yep. Can you imagine if they did that? Can you imagine if it was like Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper are going to fly around the world? <laughs> <laughs> Wolf Blitzers it on a speedboat. He's catching up. <laughs> so you'd watch the hell out of that. Actually, I probably probably would. <laughs> bring, bring back the old 1930s bullshit, guys, in terms of bad journalism. Um... But anyway, so that she they they only let her go once she comes clean and says, I, I think that Croy was the murderer in the Devereaux case, and I want to follow and get the scoop on that. And then they're like, okay, that is actually news. You can go and tail him, basically. So I, I kind of like that. That was like a nice little moment. And then a cop breaks the news about this to McBride. And they also say that somebody's angry about some pork chops that gave them a rash. I wrote that down because it was so weird. I just... <laughs> There's so much in this movie where it's like throwaway lines like that. Like, is that a callback to something that happened earlier? I can't even tell. Or did you just throw that in? Because <laughs> there's so much that doesn't make sense to me. See, I actually like things like that because it's, it's those sorts of inconsequential little details that kind of make the movie seem a little bit more real. Yeah, no, I, I dug it too, for sure. I just, it, it the this movie felt a little bit more hard to follow for me. And that doesn't help by the fucking international travel that we're about to go on. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Now, Kevin, you're not a millennial, so you don't, you're not going to know what the fuck I'm talking about here, but all my, all my, all, all the five millennials who listen to this will know, or maybe they won't. I don't know. Um, camp rock Two. Um, there is a scene where all the camp rock campers go marching in to um, do battle with their camp rivals at the other camp, uh, which name the name escapes me here. But um, and they're all like clapping their bodies weirdly and like chanting, and it's like a very bizarre march, and like it always makes me laugh hysterically because it looks so strange. Basically, that happens, but it's the bunch of reporters singing about flying in the air, marching to the airport in this movie to to go take a plane to the start of the race in California. They're all singing. They're all skipping. It's like a big line of people. I mean, can you imagine if you were like an airport employee and you saw this? So you're saying that that doesn't happen like when you go to a press conference or something? No, you don't. <laughs> you don't more, see. More of like a tap dance thing? I mean, geez, I would. I wish it did. That would be the nice source of camaraderie, but I've never seen this happen in my life. And I've been a reporter. Uh, what, 20 years? 20 years. I've been a reporter since the since the Hoover days. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm smoking a cig- cigar with a cigarette holder. <laughs> and wearing the biggest damn hat I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, it's just taking up the whole room. <laughs> Any audio issues you've heard in this episode have been caused by that hat. <laughs> yeah, so this was an odd moment. If I ever saw people doing this at work, I would I would worry that there was some sort of gas leak and I would just get out of there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the Merc Bride comes to sort of intercept Torchy before she can leave and 
told, tells her to stop trying to be a detective and she tells him to start trying to be. So kind of a refrain from their previous movie. And um, he kisses her and says, take care of yourself, you little idiot, which is weird because that's what you see to me every day. <laughs> I feel so seen by this movie. Yeah, you, you stole that line, babe. I didn't even know it. And then sort of inexplicably, <laughs> Gahagan comes running up. He's carrying a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not even sure what all of it was. He starts dropping it. And then he hops onto the uh, onto the plane. No, I, Kevin, that's not what happens. Gahagan explodes into this scene. Suddenly he's there. He's like falling out of a car. Shit's flying everywhere. He's running. McBride's yelling and chasing him. And then he makes it onto the plane. <laughs> why? Why is McBride chasing him? Because McBride is pissed off that he quit the police force. So apparently when you're upset that your coworker resigns, you can just chase them and run after them and yell at them all the time. Very normal. Very normal behavior. Isn't that what you did when one of your colleagues got poached by Politico? <laughs> hey! Start running, chasing them down the street. Um, so, you know, and at this point I was confused. I think basically the plane is taking all these reporters... To the starting point of the race. That wasn't made clear. No. Because it was kind of bizarre that all these people who are in a dramatic race around the world are all using the exact same form of transportation at the same time. They're so all on the same plane. It's like, is it a race to see who can get off the plane first? <laughs> It'd be like if you and I were having a race to Chicago and we both boarded the same Greyhound bus to Chicago. Let's do that. It doesn't sound nightmarish at all. Um, meanwhile, uh, aside from this hot plane action, McBride, um, McBride's top suspect, who was like this professional jewel thief is alibied because he was doing another crime at the time. So he's back to square one. You know, we go cut back to the plane. People get Hagen's freaking out for some reason. Don't really know why McBride sends Torchy sort of a note, a telegram once she lands. Um, and he basically let lets her know the news. Um and 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 then we then we I guess the race starts because Huey Sprague, who's the he's he's a reporter, he's like very loquacious, he's very well spoken, he's spoke speaks in these kind of poetic terms. Um he's gonna race he's the one who's racing Croy. And um and he hates his wife and I think he's cheating on her. Is that basically his his character? Pretty much. Yeah. And then we get a bunch of stock footage of planes. And, and I'm just thinking at this point, this movie feels so loud. Like, there's always, like, a big staticky thing in the background. Like, like the planes are going. <laughs> it's, really, it's, a, it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Or was I just losing it like Gahagan at that point? <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Gahagan in you. Lo- I, well, thanks. Well, I, I think you're Gahagan-esque in some ways, too. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but you know we see. You know, I mean, like, but, I mean, there's just the, all this noise: the big boats, water churning, planes are flying, just all this hot plane B-roll shit, and yeah. And then we go to stereotypical Hawaii B-roll, and and we notice that Kahagan is taking covert photos. And I when I say but that, not really covert. Well, yeah, 
Why, why are they not so covert, Kevin? It's like he went to uh, Party City and got a giant novelty camera with a giant novelty flash. Like this camera is almost as big as his entire upper body. And he like takes it out and takes very obviously takes some pictures. Do, do we, it's is it even clear who he's taking photos of. No. And so then uh, Sprague, who it turns out later that he's taking photos of Sprague, comes over to him and says, you know, oh, let me take your photo and, you know, takes a picture of him. So, okay. That very important B, B plot here. Um, Torchy. Also in the course of that dialogue, yeah. it's crucial. Hagen drops a bit of a personal detail about himself. He's married. Now, now, what do you think Mrs. Gehagen is like? Very. What are her hopes and her dreams? She's very patient. <laughs> you just suddenly come running in and talk, get a shoe shine and then run out of the house. She's a saint. So are you Gehagen or are you, are you Mrs. Gehagen? I'm Mrs. Gehagen. <laughs> you don't even have to think about that one. Oh, yeah, and Gehagen reveals that he's a private detective. So, meanwhile, finally we get to see some sleuthing from Torchy. What happens? Uh, she uh, breaks into someone's room with the assistance of a, of a maid. Uh, she finds a note. Something about goods are going to be delivered to Frankfurt. Uh, unfortunately, Torchy makes an amateurish blunder. She drops her lipstick in the room. Therefore, the owner of the room, Croy, knows she's been in the room. Yeah, so, you know, what you're like, oh, is he going to try to attack her or something? Nope, we just cut to this Indiana Jones map. They're bouncing around from Hong Kong to Hanoi to, uh, you know, I guess then they go to Germany eventually. Meanwhile... McBride is told by uh, Croy's old fiance, who he jilted, that he is uh, guilty. She was actually, you know, not talking to him on the phone. So then McBride decides, I'm going to get over to Germany in time to meet this plane. Croy, Croy shoots some guy, I guess, right? I think. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of hard to follow this sometimes. And then McBride confronts Croy. Um, we, you know, but he, he gets cabled that they've lost the witness. They've lost his fiance. She's not going to testify. And then we go to some random German couple, this old couple who are laughing about balloons. And then we have some stock footage of a Zeppelin because they're on a Zeppelin now. Which Zeppelin in particular? Some of the stock footage is the Hindenburg. <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of surprising because this film was released one month after the Hindenburg disaster. <laughs> what do you think the conversation between the film editor and the director was? Just keep it in. It's fine. It's fine. We don't have the money to reshoot it. We can't reshoot this. Are you Are you crazy? This is a fucking Torchy Blaine film, you son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, the humanity. <laughs> Anya, people died. You ever, that, I remember listening to it's like such a famous line. I remember listening to that for the first time. I was like, I can barely understand what that guy's saying. Oh, Anya. What? Yes. I have hundreds or thousands of hours of old radio shows. He's like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, what the fuck? You've got to listen to all of it. Oh, God. Have you not listened to much old time radio? 
No. You know, there's a certain variance in audio quality. You know, these old-time radio shows were originally aired live long before the advent of high fidelity. As a result, you may detect an occasional surface noise or volume drop, so common to old-time radio. We hope, however, that any variance in audio quality would not take away from your pleasure in listening to this. One of the all-time favorite shows. That was like the little thing at the beginning of uh, each radio rerun cassette I would buy as a boy. What happened to that poor guy who was so, who saw the Hindenburg and was so traumatized by it? Because it's a horrifying like thing, that, you know, the footage. I think like what thirty people died, right? Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that, that uh depressing dip into history, um, into radio history, I guess. You later uh, wore the worlds. Did you ever hear that? Yes. You've read War of the Worlds? I've not I not listened to it. I've heard of it. We had to learn about it in media class. Oh, you need to listen to it. That's the uh the Earth is invaded by aliens oh, and it is it is told in the style of newscasts, radio newscasts. Great storytellings by your good friend Orson Welles of the Mercury Theater of the Air. It sounds fun. Did, is it true that people actually thought it was real and were worried? Yes, that, that's been exaggerated somewhat, but yes, it was true. That's so awesome. <laughs> Love a good hoax. Uh, and, and, you know, Orson Welles at the time said, oh, I'm so sorry, blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, I I went to college at Indiana University where the Lilly Library has the Orson Welles letter collection. When you go through that, there was like one letter written to him right after the War of the Worlds where somebody said, can you believe these idiots actually believe this? Dipshits. But I digress. There's a lot of stupid people out there, so. Um, let's get back to this torchy yeah, shit. Yeah, let's get back. No, speaking of, uh, yeah. Speaking of disasters, let's talk about this, this, uh, this sort of rushed ending. First, some blackmail. Uh, McBride finally catches up with Gehagen. Um, but meanwhile, his quarry has sort of uh, has become the predator because Sprague ended up taking, he took photos of Sprague to prove, you know, in some sort of divorce case to show that he was flirting with other women. Sprague took a bunch of photos of just Gehagen himself and then somehow like did some 1930s Photoshop to get other women in the photo so it looks like Gehagen's flirting around with other people. So then they trade photos and Gehagen gets nothing. And I think Gehagen at this point decides to give up on the idea of being a private detective and he wants to go back to being a driver for the police. So that was a wild ride for nothing. No payoff there. Don't even understand why they had that. But Croy gets murdered and Torchy gets a telegram um, delivered by a confused Zeppelin employee. And she and McBride sort of figure out that Alistair is behind it all. Does Alistair kill that Zeppelin employee? I, I didn't even see her. Did that Zeppelin yeah. employee run away? I think he runs away. I'm not sure. I don't know. But then Alistair jumps out of the Zeppelin, <laughs> pulls the chute too soon, dies horribly. The people on the ground see his mangled mess of a body. His battered remains. It's horrifying. Oh, the humanity. But mystery solved. Yay, and that's the end. <laughs> Torchy and McBride uh, are set to marry, uh, but then she's told she has to cover a story in Chicago, so they don't get married. And then Gehagen drives around reciting poetry while Torchy and McBride make out in the back of the car. The end. There are seven more Torchy Blaine movies. 
Are you imagining that? Are we going to keep on watching these? I think we're going to keep on watching these. I mean, they're weird enough to kind of be so- somewhat fun and memorable. And then, you know, they have a great titular character, Torchy Blaine. She's great. I really like her. The, you know, you, you know, you, you just, you get, you don't get a lot of her. And that's, that's a problem. I mean, I think these are not like, these are not like the thin man. Like I would not recommend these to folks who don't like, you know, I would recommend the thin man to like people, you know what I mean? Cause it's just a lot of fun. And, and, and even though maybe it has a lot of bullshit where you don't, Oh, it's like get back to Nick and Nora Charles, but like you, you have enough of them where you feel satisfied to a certain extent. This doesn't have enough torchy. Yeah. You don't have enough torchy. You, uh, the mysteries are never all that interesting. Uh, the production value is lamentable. Uh, I, do, I honestly don't know why they decided to do uh, a trip to all these foreign locations when they didn't have the budget for it. Uh, it just seemed... I, I liked Torchy. Uh, I kind of liked Gahagan. Yeah, I like Gahagan too. When those two are not on the screen, it's hard to maintain interest. And even when they are on the screen sometimes and they're in the midst of the mystery... It's kind of a tough slog. Agreed. Are you going to set and type your unvarnished take? Oh, you know I am. I'd say that these first two Torchy films have a spark of magic, but are dimmed by characters who don't hold a candle to this spunky lady reporter. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks Thanks so so much much for listening. listening.